I'd like to invite you to turn your again to the book of Numbers. And we'll actually be looking at five chapters today. Numbers 26 through 30. Now, obviously, because of the, the great length of these chapters and the fact that there's five of them, I won't be reading them all to you. Um, so open us in prayer and then we'll, we'll dive in uh, to this morning's message. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. That we might know you. That we might, might be redeemed from our sin. And Lord, that we might be assured of all the promises that you've given us. You, we didn't deserve any of this revelation. For you are the creator. We are just the creature. And yet you have not only crowned us with glory and honor by making us in your image, in contrast with all the rest of creation. Lord, you've even honored us even above the angels who stand in glory, who themselves are holy. And yet you've honored us that we might know you and even be adopted as part of your family. And so again, we, we thank you for we know these things because you've revealed them to us. And we pray that you'd continue to reveal yourself to us through the book of Numbers, even as we look at these chapters this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On November 11th, uh, 1620, just off the coast of Cape Cod, the pilgrims wrote a hastily um, contrived document. Forty-one of the uh, male passengers on the Mayflower signed this vague pact of cooperation, agreeing to submit to the leadership and the future laws that would be established in this new land that, of course, became America. And similarly, the last ten chapters of the book of Numbers also give final instructions in order to order Israel before they enter this new land that they're about to inherit from the Lord. But unlike the vagueness of the Mayflower Compact, these instructions are very clear, they're very precise, and they're very binding. These final ten chapters present a variety of instructions given to Israel, and they're critical for Israel to embrace if they're going to have success within the land. And we'll just look at the first five chapters of these final ten, which consist of five major things. The numbering of the people who are entering the land, the inheritance they'll receive, the new leadership in the land, worship in the land, and then vows made in connection with that worship. Let's look first of all at the numbering of the people in the land. Now, as you recall, this is the second time that a census is made to the people of Israel. In fact, the book of Numbers begins with a census. And that census, of course, was the first generation who was offered the land, but of course, on account of their cowardice, their lack of faith, they never did inherit it. In fact, instead, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But the second generation is able to enter the land, and therefore, 
a second census is made. And really the second census demonstrates the continued faithfulness of God. Because the point is, even though that first generation sinned and did not inherit the promise, God is still going to be faithful to the promise. He's still going to give the land to Israel. It's just, he's going to give it to their children. Moreover, if you look at the numbers between the first census and the second census, the nation has remained roughly the same size. It hasn't been severely diminished despite 40 years of living in a wilderness. So it shows the faithfulness of God. He's been faithful even though he needed to discipline them severely. Another thing I want you to notice about this census is the brief narratives that are given. Obviously, it lists all these different people and their generations. But if you read it carefully, you'll notice there's little narratives on a few of these. The first is Dathan and Abiram in verses 9 through 11. Then Ur and Onan in verse 19. Nadab and Abihu in verse 61. Then the first generation is described in verse 64. Now, these are all people who have failed miserably. And of course, that's the point. Even though these people failed, their descendants would still receive the land. They haven't been cut off. God is still faithful to his promise. God's promises may be delayed by human sin, but they cannot be eliminated. That's the point. As Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, truly, I say to you, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. And of course, he's referring to when he says the law, he's primarily referring to the Pentateuch. Of course, this by application refers to all of Scripture. All of Scripture will be fulfilled. But these promises made to Israel will be fulfilled just as God promised. The, the second part of the chapter um, in verses 52 to 65 actually give an explanation of how the land will be divided amongst the 12 tribes. And the, the connection to this, to the, the, the What's gone before in the census is pretty obvious because these land allotments would be divided up based upon how many people were in each tribe. So God's being very fair. If you have a lot of people in the tribe, you're going to get the most amount of land. If you only have a a small tribe, you're going to get the smallest amount of land. And then after the various tribes get their allotments, the, the allotments that go to the various families of those 12 tribes are going to be based upon the casting of lots. So that it's fair. This is God demonstrating his wisdom and his desire to show fairness and and also to eliminate any sort of squabbling or resentment. If one family gets more land than another, nicer land than another, they would recognize that God in his sovereignty has allotted them this and it's a gift and they would be thankful for it. We see this in verse 54 to a large tribe. You shall give a large inheritance and to a small tribe. You shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list, but the land shall be divided by lot. Then we come to chapter 27, which ties to the land allotments that are given to each family, because it's a narrative about one family that is concerned about their allotment. Generationally in Israel, Land allotments uh, went down uh, from fathers to sons. And usually it was the firstborn son that got the most amount of land. But what if a father 
has no sons. He only has daughters. What then will become of his inheritance? Well, this was the concern that was addressed by the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. They asked Moses in verse 3, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against Yahweh in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Now, when Moses hears this question, he doesn't have immediate answer. He sees the reasonableness of it. And so he takes it to the Lord and asks the Lord what he should do. And God actually affirms the concern and the logic of these daughters. In fact, he bases a whole new statute upon this concern. Look at verse six. And he always said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And the new statute legislated that land should remain within a family, if at all possible. So if there's no heirs, that land should be then allotted to the nearest kinsman, a brother. And if there's no brothers, then it would be to a cousin. But if, if at all possible, you want to keep the land within a family. And this, this shows how important uh, an inheritance is to God. God wants to assure all the families of Israel they will receive an inheritance. It will not be taken away from them. And in fact, it's this statute that forms the basis for the book of Ruth. For as you recall, it's on account of this law that Boaz redeemed uh, Ruth to be his wife so that that land that would have gone to Naomi and uh, her husband uh, would remain within the family, would remain within Naomi's family. And so the, the story of Ruth and the, this brief narrative of the daughters of Zelophehad show us again how important inheritance is to God. When he promises to give his people something, he wants them to know they're going to get it because it's based on his promise. And this has massive implications for us who are in the new covenant, who are in Christ. Because we who are in Christ are also promised an amazing inheritance. And we're not told precisely what all these inheritances will entail, but we are told that they are a key component in God's plan for us. They are one of the major reasons we have been redeemed. And for a very good reason, when we speak of redemption, we particularly think of our, the forgiveness that has been given to us in Christ, that we've been cleansed of our sin and we've been reconciled to him. But if you look at all the passages that speak about our salvation and redemption, many of them emphasize the inheritance that we will receive as well. Just look at a few of these. First Peter chapter one, verse three says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four to an inheritance and he doesn't just say to an inheritance, he emphasizes that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The emphasis shows God wants us to know we're getting an inheritance. It will not be taken away. Paul also mentions our future inheritance in the book of Colossians. We read this chapter one. It's part of the riches we have obtained in Christ. Verse 12. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He wants to see the inheritance is part of the salvation, an important part. The author of Hebrews as well. The author of Hebrews says that Christ actually took on his role as mediator in order to preserve this inheritance for us. Chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ is our mediator so that we might receive an inheritance. Ephesians 1.14 also says that the Holy Spirit's presence in us served as a guarantee that we'll receive an inheritance. I mean, just, stop, just think about this for a second. This is so important to God. God himself, the Holy Spirit, chose to indwell sinful human flesh in order to make sure those people would receive an inheritance. So this inheritance is not some light thing to God. This is a massive piece of his plan of redemption. And he wants us to know it. And he wants us to know nothing, nothing will strip it from us. Because it is assured for us in Christ and assured to us by the Holy Spirit himself. So this is a big deal to God and therefore it should be a big deal to us. And I think it should be one of those things that we frequently meditate on, especially as we experience loss and discouragement. John Newton brilliantly illustrated the implications of receiving this future inheritance Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, he writes. And this man's carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the while as he walked the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. We would consider him an utter fool because he has forgotten what he's about to receive. You know, John Newton doesn't assume that we're not going to face loss, that our carriages, our tents might be ruined and broken or taken from us. And yet, when you understand the inheritance that has been given to you in Christ, none of those losses mean anything. God wants us to realize we have a magnificent inheritance for us and he's preserving it just as he preserved the allotted land that he had promised to all the families in Israel. But one person amongst the millions of Israelites awaiting into the land would not be receiving an inheritance. One person amongst all these millions wouldn't be a wouldn't be giving an inheritance. And this is the one we, we would least likely to assume, and that's Moses. Moses would not receive an inheritance. Moses wouldn't enter the land. And this is what the Lord addresses in Numbers chapter 27. 
You might recall that this is because of Moses' failure. As a leader, when God asked him to speak to the rock in order to provide water for the people of Israel, instead of just speaking to it, he struck it twice. And he dishonored God and did not regard him as holy in the eyes of Israel. And so he was not allowed to enter the land as a judgment for his grievous sin. And so instead, Moses is told that he will die before Israel, Israel inherits this land. And this is what God tells Moses in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 27. And then in response, when Moses hears that he's not going into the land and that he's going to die. Moses has one final request. You know, often you see in the movies, a guy's about to be taken before a firing squad. and He's given one last request. This is Moses's one last request. Verse 16. Let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh may not be as a sheep without a shepherd. And this is so telling about Moses. And just think, despite all the, the anguish that these people have caused him over the last 40 years of his life, in fact, it was on account of their grumbling that he struck the rock. It's on, I mean, he's responsible for it. God holds him accountable for it. But he was prompted to that sin because of their grumbling. And yet, his dying words are thinking of them. His last request is that God would care for this people. There's still his primary concern. This shows that Moses has been and Unto the end, he is a faithful shepherd. He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking about the people he's been called to care for. And this is really what it means to have a shepherd's heart. To be more concerned about the people you're responsible for than your own interests. Consider how Paul and his companions demonstrated this shepherd's heart in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostle of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So of being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become dear to us. Of course, this is the leadership demonstrated by the great shepherd Christ in John chapter 10. You know the passage well. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. God gives us these passages because he wants us to know what biblical leadership looks like. Again, it's taking being more concerned about the people we care for than ourselves. And although Joshua would be a very good shepherd like Moses, he he would not be the same as Moses. 
He actually would have a, a different amount of authority. In particular, God says that in verse 20, he would receive only some of Moses' authority. And the difference being is that when Moses had a question, like with the daughters of Zelophehad, we saw in the previous text, he would just go right to God and he'd petition God. He'd speak to God face to face, ask for wisdom, ask for discernment and direction. But Joshua wouldn't have that freedom. After Moses passed away, really nobody would have that freedom. Eventually prophets would be spoken to by God, but nobody could just come and inquire of the Lord. In the same way Moses could. Joshua instead would be dependent, we're told here, upon the Urim for determining God's will. The Urim were sacred lots that were placed within the breastplate of of the high priest and they were used for determining God's will. We don't know precisely what size, shape or substance the Urim was, um, but we know that they were used by the priest to determine God's will. So they were probably something like dice. Maybe two-sided dice, you roll this, this is what comes up, this must be the Lord's will. And this was divinely appointed, this wasn't gambling. This was what God had given to the people because he wouldn't be speaking to them directly before. And so now Joshua would be dependent upon this to know what God's will would be when it was unclear. This brings us to the worship in the land. The worship in the land. Chapters 28 through 29 actually present a calendar uh, for Israel's worship, along with specific sacrifices that would need to be offered up on these various holy days. And first, we're told that there should be two daily offerings. So every day, two sacrifices need to be offered up, both in the morning and in the evening. And really, that presents to us really a pattern that we should follow today dedicating our lives to the Lord in the morning and before we go to bed at night, rededicating them to the Lord and maybe confessing any sin or failure, requesting help for the day to come. In fact, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, a prayer in the evening and a prayer in the morning are given that kind of present to us this pattern of worship that we too can follow. There's also special offerings each Sabbath. And the beginning of each month. All of this demonstrates the importance of having regular patterns of worship according to the calendar, showing Israel that all of their life, all time belonged to God. It wasn't just the Sabbath, but every day, every week, every month, every year belonged to God. There would be special holy days that would commemorate certain things and allow Israel to focus on certain promises, but all of it, every day, was to be a day of worship. And the Lord also presents required offerings for these major festivals that are scheduled throughout the year. Now, if you were with us when we studied the book of Leviticus, you might recall all of these festivals and the fact that they mark out not only the religious festivals that would be celebrated, but actually God's timeline of redemption. Because these festivals actually have a greater fulfillment as we read in the New Testament, let me show these to you. The first festival, as you know, is the Passover. The first holy day on Israel's calendar was celebrated on the first month of the 14th day. And of course, as you know, Passover commemorated 
Israel's redemption out of Egypt when they were saved on account of the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed for them. And obviously, this is pointing forward to the redemption that we find in Christ. Christ himself was sacrificed, having his blood shed that his people might be cleansed through his death on the cross. Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. So this Passover pointed forward to the cross. The next feast is the feast of first fruits. Uh, This was a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. Israel would bring a sheaf of grain from their first crops and they would dedicate it to the Lord as an offering. And and this dedication really demonstrated their confidence, their faith that God would bring more harvest to come, that this was just the beginning. This was just the first fruits. God would continue to bless them. It was an act of faith. And just as Passover pointed forward to the redemption found in Christ on the cross, the first of first the feast of first fruits, sorry, the feast of first fruits points to the resurrection of Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15:20, Paul actually describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who were asleep. And he explains that Christ's resurrection from the dead actually serves as an assurance, just like the first fruits served as an assurance. Christ's resurrection serves as an assurance that all who are in him will also receive a resurrection body like his. He's just the beginning, the first fruits of a greater harvest that's to come. So it points forward to the resurrection. The next feast was the Feast of Weeks. This was celebrated 50 days after the end of the harvest season. Thus, in the Greek, it was called Pentecost. And during this feast, the Israelites would bring the abundance of their harvest, the fullness of their harvest, as a reflection of God's generosity. It was a way of giving thanks to God for His abundance and giving them more than they expected and really more than they deserved. There was more harvest than what they had originally planned on. Well, what happened on Pentecost following Christ's resurrection? God reaped a great harvest. For the gospel went not just to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And thousands of people were saved on that day. And it was just the beginning of thousands of years to come where the gospel would go forth from Judea and Samaria and, to, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that God would reap a great harvest of souls that could be saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This feast of weeks pointed forward to this great harvest that would be reaped through the blood of Christ. The next feast then was the Feast of Trumpets. And this was celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. And it actually signaled a day of preparation for the Day of Atonement that would be coming shortly thereafter. As you recall in Numbers 10, we, told that they were, we were told that trumpets were fashioned in order to serve as a signal for assembly. They would be blown in order to call Israel to gather together. And in some cases it would be as an alarm. If they were being attacked, the trumpets would be blown and the tribes would gather and prepare to defend themselves. Or they would be blown in order for the tribes to gather and begin to set out 
on a march. So they served as a, again, a signal for assembly or alarm. And they served as a reminder that God was with Israel. And then when that trumpet was blown, they would be gathered together and that he would be with them and protect them in whatever they were facing ahead. Well, how does this feast figure into God's grand plan of redemption? We've seen the cross prefigured. We saw the resurrection. We saw the gathering of souls. The Feast of Trumpets points to that great day of redemption. God's final day of judgment. You might recall in Matthew twenty four thirty one, Jesus wrote this. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And these trumpets are also featured in Revelation 8 and 9 in the trumpet judgments that are blown to mark the beginning of God's wrath getting poured out upon the earth, but also marking the beginning of God about to bring his people to himself. And then, of course, the next feast is the Day of Atonement. As you recall, this was the one day of the year when the holy high priest would enter the veil of the Holy of Holies. It was the day when all of Israel would be cleansed from their sin. Now, the Day of, sorry, the day of Atonement was very special to Israel because it was Israel's day. It was only Israel that was cleansed on the Day of Atonement. It wasn't the Gentiles. It was Israel. The other nations didn't receive the benefit of this. But we know from the New Testament that it will not be until the very end of the age that Israel experiences this full atonement and recognizes her true Redeemer. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. I don't want you... For I do want, try again, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And once the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's point is that day of atonement points forward to the day when all of Israel eventually will be saved. They will be cleansed from their sin. They will be, they will be free to sin no more. And they will finally inherit the land that God has promised to them. And this brings us to the last holy day. The Feast of Booths. Or Tabernacles, it's sometimes called. And this was celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement. Sometimes it's called the ingathering. And during this feast, all of Israel would construct temporary shelters or booths and live in them for seven days. It was like a, a, a massive nationwide campout. They would make shelters of branches of various trees. And the feast reminded them that they once lived in temporary shelters as they made their pilgrimage to the land that God had promised them, where God had promised them rest. So how does this feast point to God, fit in with God's great plan of redemption? What is it pointing to in the future? Well, it's, it's very interesting that this feast is celebrated after Christ sets up his kingdom upon the earth in the millennial kingdom. 
in Zechariah 14, it emphasizes that any nation who fails to celebrate the Feast of Booths will be severely disciplined. This is what it writes. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, there will be no rain that will fall on them. It will be a plague with which Yahweh smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You see, you see this emphasis. There will be people who choose not to obey Christ and celebrate this feast, and they will be disciplined for it. So why is this feast so significant? Again, it's a reminder that in their pilgrimage, Israel had to dwell in temporary shelters, tents. Well, recall what Paul said about tents in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. He said, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Since we will receive our resurrected bodies at the return of Christ, this feast will be for us to commemorate that we too once dwelt in temporary shelters. And that God instead has prepared for us a permanent shelter. It will, it will help us to recall that once we did not have glorified bodies, but bodies that were destroyed by sin and fallible to corruption. But now He has given us promised rest in the land. And this is the ultimate significance of the Feast of Booths. So at that point, after Christ's return, just as Israel used the shelters to look back on, on their pilgrimage as they came to the land in the book of Numbers, the Feast of Booths in the future will be celebrated for all resurrected believers to look back and remember they too once had temporary shelters, but God has given them permanent ones so that they could always live in the land with Him and never die. This brings us to the last chapter that we'll look at today. The fulfilling of vows in the land. Now, this is the second time that we've come across legislation in the book of Numbers regarding vows. The first, as you remember, is in chapter 5 that dealt with vows between a husband and a wife and marriage and vows that would be taken, um, like the Nazarite vow, as a commitment to God. And the reason the legislation comes up here is because vows were often made in association with these sacrifices that be offered up. A person would offer up a sacrifice and along with that sacrifice, they'd make a vow committing themselves to the Lord and, and frequently asking the Lord that if God would bless them in certain, in a certain way, they would vow to give him something in return or devote themselves in some way in return. A good example of such a vow is made by Hannah in 1 Samuel. She vowed a vow and said, Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him 
to Yahweh all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah's doing exactly this. She's vowing that if God will bless her with a child. He will, she will give that child back to him to serve him all of his life. And of course, God does bless her with Samuel and Samuel serves God in the temple all of his life. And regarding this legislation on vows that we see here in this chapter, really two principles are established. The first is that a vow is binding. Look at verse two. If a man vows a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In other words, what a person vows to God, he needs to fulfill it. We need to be faithful to our promises. Since God always speaks the truth, he expects his people to speak the truth. Right? We're to be like him. We're set apart to follow after him. To, to, to have a life that manifests his character to the rest of the world. And so just as he is true, we should be true. So words matter to God. And solemn words especially matter to God. The second principle is that only the head of a family can annul a vow that's been made. If a man makes a vow because he's the head of the family, he is bound to fulfill it. He has to. However, if a single woman makes a vow, her father can annul it because he's the head of the family. He can, once he hears it, and it's a, it, once, immediately after he hears of it, he needs to respond and say, no, I'm, that, I'm making that vow void. But he has the right to do that as the head of the family. If a wife makes a vow, same thing, her husband can make it void. We see this in verses 6 through 8. But if a widow or a divorced woman makes a vow, they are bound to fulfill that vow because they have no head over them. They are the head of their family, so to speak. Because they're a widow or divorced. We see that in verse 9. But the fact that this legislation is not just about vows, but about the authority to make something void, particularly a vow, is made clear in the final verse. Look at verse 16. These are the statutes that Yahweh commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. So the point is, one cannot claim that they have a religious obligation. And because of that religious obligation, that gives them the freedom to disregard the authority that God has placed over them. God is saying your authority is still your authority. And so that authority can dismiss a vow that you might have made. Now, this principle should give us massive encouragement. You know, in our day and age, a person might read this and think, oh, man, you know, how patriarchal, how how evil that that that, that men are, are, are elevated above women. But that would be totally missing the point of this passage. Because really what's what it's emphasizing is that the head of the family has the authority to dismiss a foolish vow. A foolish decision. It should be massive comfort to us who are in Christ. 
Because Christ is our head and He bears full responsibility for our words and our actions. That's the point of this 30. Men, a husband bears the responsibility for his family because he's the head of the home. And Christ bears the responsibility for His church because He's the head of the church. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 1. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile unto Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. The reason He can do that is because He's our head. He has borne all of our responsibility for all of our sins, all of our foolishness. And God counts His sacrifice as sufficient because He is our head. For us to disregard what's being legislated here in Numbers would be to, in effect, disregard the blessing of having an authority who takes responsibility for us. It's a massive mercy. Christ keeps us safe from our own folly as our head by interceding before us and God, between us and God. So God's care for Israel is demonstrated in all these instructions and numbers. And, and all these instructions really are there to encourage us who are under the new covenant. Just again, in summary, consider how all these things have implications on our life. The numbering emphasizes that just as God was faithful to bring his people into the land, despite their sin, God will also be faithful to bring us who are in Christ to receive our final inheritance despite our sin. Just as God was faithful to make sure all of His people who enter the land would receive their inheritance, believers who are in Christ can be assured that we too will receive an inheritance that is undefiled and preserved in heaven for us. Just as God made sure His people would never be without a shepherd, and He gave them Joshua and then other shepherds that followed, we who are in Christ will also never be without a shepherd because our shepherd lives and he's always interceding on our behalf and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He will never leave us or forsake us. Just as God pictured his redemptive plan in the worship calendar for Israel, we can see God's faithfulness. As we look back and see, He fulfilled all these things that these feasts were pointing to. And just as He has fulfilled those, those feasts, some of those feasts already, we know that He will fulfill what these other feasts, we, He will fulfill these, the, the rest of those feasts sometime in the future. It indicates there's still greater things to come in God's great plan of redemption. And even as we wait for that great time, we can take comfort that despite our continued sin, despite our continued failure, despite our folly, that 
inheritance, all these promises will not be stripped from us because we have a faithful head who loves us, who nourishes us and cherishes us. Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has taken full responsibility for all of our words and all of our actions and will assuredly bring us home to be with Him. Let's pray. Lord, all of our confidence is in You. We are tempted, tried, and and frequently fail. But our confidence is not that we will try harder, that we will get better. That may be true. But our confidence really is in what You've already accomplished and what You've promised. God, we thank You for being faithful. We thank You that You've given us these promises. We thank You that You've proven Yourself faithful to other promises that You've made so that we can have assurance that despite all of our weakness and failure, You will bring us safely home. And because all of our confidence is in You, Christ, we want to serve You all of our days and continue to praise You now in song. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.